Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Petty Politics, a podcast created by the Harvard Black Law Students Association. Bringing you the petty and bringing you the politics, but more so the petty. As always. My <laughs> As na- always. <laughs> my name is Cameron Clark. I am a third-year law student at Harvard Law School. I'm also the managing editor of the Harvard Journal on Racial and Ethnic Justice. My name is Brianna Williams. I am a third-year law student at Harvard Law School, and I'm the director of communication for Harvard's Black Law Students Association. And welcome to the podcast. This is a podcast that is really our place to talk about all of the issues of the day, pop culture, Today music, and Trump. art, Donald Trump, which we always have something to say about. Yeah, about that. So <laughs> every episode, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. First, we're going to start with our life in the law section. Mm-hmm. And that section just elucidates a little bit how we're living. What does it mean to be a black student at Harvard Law? What does it mean to not be able to access certain resources and spaces? What does it mean to be the creators of such dialogue in order to disseminate it to our people? Especially, people <laughs> right, especially knowing that we are now looking to enter the job market. We're in our last year at Harvard we Law. Are, we so we're, are. We're all navigating what jobs we want to do, how we're going to get paid, what the hustle is going to be. When we're going to get paid. Quick question. (laughs) Donations are accepted at, um, yeah. We are not. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all don't have to pay us nothing. We do this for free. It's a labor of love. It's a labor of love. If you want to, you can, though. We're we're, we're not against it. We also lovingly call it Today in Trump because it'll almost always have something that Donald Trump has done. Where we talk about the issues of the day, we're going to talk about law, policy, politics, Democrats and Republicans and Antifa and alt-right. constitution, capitalism. Everything we've learned in law fascism, school. Fascism, authoritarianism. Everything we've learned and unlearned <laughs> and unlearned. Isms. We're going to always talk about an ism for you. Then we're going to get into the petty. The petty. Uh, we'll always, we'll always come with the tea. So be ready with your cup. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about pop culture, music, TV, arts, and film. Rihanna, Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, maybe even a Taylor Swift if she does something that makes me laugh (laughs) or potentially cry. Yeah. I mean, what is she even doing these days? Didn't she come out with a diss song to Kanye West? Is she? Super weak. What is she doing? Super weak. Talking about like his tilted stage. Like, girl, there's so many things you can say about his tilted, about Kanye West from his, I don't even want to get into it, (laughs) but why are you talking about the infrastructure of his concert? Like, get out of (laughs) here. I'm mad. I'm pressed. That's petty, guys. That's petty. (laughs) Let's get started. All right, y'all, we're going to start off with the life and the law segment. So we're going to talk a little bit about our experience of being in Los Angeles, California this summer. Working in the private sector and also the public interest, it's obviously a bit different. So I worked in the private sector this summer. We were roommates. That's a disclaimer, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Disclaimer. Uh, I worked in the private sector. I work at a primary litigation firm based in Century City. It was awesome. I did an array of issues from IP litigation to insurance law to surety and bonds. And so I was able to get exposed to a diverse practice arena. It was great. I really do love litigation because I love memo writing. If you don't like to write, if you don't like to research, then don't go into litigation. Corporate might be your thing. In addition to the thousands of other things you can do with a law degree. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's neither here nor there. So I had a great summer working in Century City. I most likely will return back to the firm that I worked at this summer. That's usually what you do after your second year summer. And that's also a thing. Both Cam and I were rising 3Ls this summer. And so this year we're 3Ls. And this year we're really, you know, trying to figure out what we want to do Mm -hmm. for a long-term career, right? 
it's scary. It's so scary. It, it's real hard. And, and another thing I'll tell you guys is I had my baby. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I had my baby during finals period, last period. I had her on 422, and I actually took a final while I was in labor. And so I asked. <laughs> True story. No, I asked for that epidural, and I finished my final. So you guys can do it. I'm not saying everyone can do it. I'm just saying it's possible. It's, it's possible. And that really but, changed, you know, our experience in L.A. It, it really year, did right? because I went to work four weeks after I had her. And it was interesting trying to become a mom and also be someone in the work field and working at a firm. So you really got a taste of that work-life balance. And I think that it molded my perspective for long term, how I plan to work and where I plan to work, because obviously I need a firm that's going to allow me to go to dance recitals. Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm saying this. Yeah. <laughs> Planning your entire life with a child. I know, my whole entire life. Uh, yeah. What, this like, is... what were some of the things that you feel like you're going to have to change about your life now that you have a child and you're about to enter into the legal oh, my profession? Drinking. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. one thing. No. My wine. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some things, I guess, I don't really, I never really felt like I would have to change a lot. I know a lot of people feel as though when they have children, they would have to basically become a new person and leave a lot of things behind. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to traveling, when it comes to hanging out with friends, when it coming, when it comes to activism and being proactive in the community, and then when it comes to completing your long-term goals, I didn't yeah. think that I would have to change those things. My long-term goals are probably not to work in a litigation firm. I want to do political commentary. I want to be an author. I want to go into academia. I'm doing a substantial amount of research right now. And so all of those things are things I feel like I can do with my daughter. For example, this summer, me and my daughter went to Paris. We actually went uh, from L.A. to Atlanta. I went to Jamaica. Then we went to New York together. And then we went to Paris. Together. It was a great experience. And I think setting. that tra- exactly. I think that traveling with and she, yes, Life my baby flay. has her passport, guys. She's goals. Casual but, <laughs> flay, but traveling. And just, traveling. Exactly. Traveling <laughs> and now she's here at HLS and she has a great community of support and friends and she's always around an intellectually stimulating environment there are children and family groups offered here to help us get assimilated into this community and it's great i have a great amount of resources at hand and i think that honestly having a baby in law school is great so right if you ever want to talk about that guys you can email me yeah we'll probably have to have a longer <laughs> we se- probably segment have about that a longer in the segment. future exactly right you can't necessarily trivialize that <laughs> so yeah I also lived in L.A., also with Bree this year. I was in the public interest, and so my job experience was pretty different in that a lot of the work that I do on the you know public sector end is not as well paid. It involves a lot more organizing work, grassroots activism work at the core of our mm-hmm. um, kind of focus. The constituency that we serve is kind of different. Oftentimes we were working directly with people that are from a marginalized background. I did a lot of work this year with the transgender community, which I really appreciated to be able to learn more about that. Right. I also worked with people in prisoner populations, people that are um, under undocumented immigrants that are currently detained in ICE facilities. And so I really felt like I had a better understanding of some of the really complex problems that we deal with today, including something that we're going to talk about a little bit more in the political section today. One thing that I did really struggle with this summer is money. Um, (laughs) And I'm sure anyone that kind of does the public sector work, whether that's in a nonprofit setting or in a legal setting, is pretty familiar uh, with struggling to make ends meet, especially 
especially in a pretty high-income area like Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, I'm very blessed to say that, you know, Harvard Law School offers us really great support when it comes to doing public interest work. However, when you're living in L.A. and you're trying your best to be able to pay for rent and also buy food and maybe go out to a brunch every once in a while. Oh, my gosh. I bought your ramen so many times. It was a lot. (laughs) It was a lot. And you see, that was privilege being put to work, and I appreciate it. Oh, my Because me and Cam argue about this all the time. But it was different, though, right? It is different. Yeah. Because it, I mean, monetarily, for sure, without saying, but the impact that you can have working in the private sector versus public interest. And so, for example, at my summer at a litigation firm, I did an immigration case. Mm -hmm. And obviously it was not pro bono because I was being paid summer associate salary, which is pretty significant. You guys go look it up. But I did an immigration case with two amazing children working to get them asylum to the United States due to gang persecution in Guatemala. And it probably was the most meaningful work that I did over the summer. And it's an interesting dynamic looking and seeing the public interest versus the private sector and whether or not that work is as meaningful because Cam has different ideas about that. And I think that we could even have our own segment. That's definitely that. going to have to be our own section, you know? That is a, it, I, I felt it, yeah, because, I mean, I'm getting paid for it, so it's clearly maybe incentivized work, but it doesn't, I don't, I still think that it's still just as meaningful, whereas Cam thinks, Cam well, I won't get into it too much, just because I know it'll be a long conversation, and we got things to talk about. We do, we have a lot um, to talk about. But, but one thing today. that I will say is that, you know, in doing the same type of work, you know, Brie was able to do pro bono work, mm-hmm. and I was able to do um, work that, you know, I was being paid for, but still not being able to make ends meet really kind of changed the dynamic that we had. You know, it was it was lucky. I was lucky to be able to live with Brie in that if there were any issues or if I was running short on money, then I had Brie around in case there was any major difficulties. But then, of course, I stayed longer in Los Angeles doing work than Brie did. So yeah, I was my, probably... my essay position ended a bit earlier, whereas Cam took on another... Exactly. Uh, so I took on an extra job, and that was kind of on me. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, it meant that I would have to be paying for for rent longer, paying for a car longer, paying to just live in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And we just wanted to tell you guys about these things so you know what you're getting into when you decide whether or not you want to go into the public interest or private sector. Right. Yeah. And so that was a struggle for me. Um, it meant that I had to rack up a lot of credit card debt. It meant that I had to oh, call my I parents guess. up every once in a while and say, hey, do you <laughs> do you mind sending me a little bit of money and putting it into my bank account? Um, but this is one of those things that makes public interest work very challenging to enter into, but does not at all change how gratifying it is. Um, And so I don't have any regrets about the work that I've done. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do want to kind of use this as a space for us to talk about what are some of these differences in the law for people that are interested and don't really know what kind of financial choices they might have to make by Mm -hmm. entering into these fields. I actually did work at Children's Rights during winter term. Mm. And Children's Rights are actually opening up an office in LA, which is great. I actually saw them at the Public Interest Benefit Dinner. Mm -hmm. And Children's Rights primarily performs top-down litigation on behalf of children that are abused and neglected, whose constitutional rights are not being fulfilled in the system. So these children are in foster care and such, and we go and do high-impact litigation against these systems mm-hmm. for not neglecting these children and such, and their medical needs or their spatial concerns or even the turnaround between social workers. And it was really interesting seeing the difference between top-down litigation and, and high-impact litigation and grassroots mobilization, which is what we're normally used to doing as students right. and as activists. Right. And so what did you think? Were you able to actually get into top-down litigation models or were you doing primarily grassroots mobilization because I did hear you mention that and yeah. if so what do you think 
is more impactful concerning the community? Um, well, I don't know if I can say what is most impactful. I think it's important that as many people as possible can do this work in whatever field they're in. I was really fortunate to have organizing built into the work that I was doing over the summer. Mm-hmm. So my employers would say, hey, you know, we're having a rally with this organization. They're going to be at City Hall. We're going to go there as part of our work yeah, for the I, day. You did go to some big rally. What, what, what was it? Well, I, I don't want to say the organizations and all of that oh. just to keep it, you know, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. potentially confidential. But, you know, when the healthcare debate over the summer was really heating up, there was a moment where we had multiple phone banks, right? And we would bring people in from the community to support this work and to tell their stories. I um, mean, that was all a part of the work that I was doing. Um, in terms of the legal work that we were doing, a lot of it was pretty mundane, day-to-day, writing memos, working on briefs, working on motions, right? So that part didn't really change, but it was nice to at least be able to meet with clients that we were working with, to be able to go out into these facilities to talk to people and learn from them directly about some of the things that they were going through. Um, And that was one thing that I really, really valued from doing this work. And I'm sure you did too, right? Being able to work and do some immigration cases directly with people that were at risk of being, you know, removed from the country. Exactly. It was a very scary situation, especially with the new alterations to immigration policy the new under the new administration. So. Right. And that's Very one scary. thing we're about to get into yeah, also. Yeah, later. So, first healthcare. Right, right. <laughs> so today in Trump, we're actually going to start with... <laughs> the political. The political. Okay. Let's not give Trump more credit than he deserves. Exactly. He gets that on his Twitter, I suppose. I know right. he's verified. That's <laughs> why. <laughs> So today in Trump, uh, we're going to start with our healthcare segment. It's on and popping. It is. This might even go under the petty. (laughs) It's a lot. No, it's getting really petty. Okay, so apparently Republican leaders have until September 30th to nail down the final votes needed to pass what Vice President Mike Pence on Thursday is calling their last best chance. Mm. And this is to repeal Obamacare called the Graham-Cassidy bill. So it's introduced by Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. And the vote is next week. And they're looking to make good on the seven years of promises. Right. To repeal and replace Obamacare. Nothing. Exactly. Okay, so but they basically don't have Democratic support for this bill. Therefore, they're needing all 50 votes. Right. And I even heard that at this point they're looking to buy certain states because some people <laughs> are on the edge. Yeah, no, I heard that. I think it's tricky, you know, like it very, it the very thing well about politics, at least in this administration, is that it's all about numbers, right? There is very is. little bipartisanship because exactly. one political party. Which is so problematic because hmm. healthcare in general should be a bipartisan issue. It well, should be a course. bipartisan effort. Of course. And the inability of Republicans to even agree on something right now when it's the ball has been in their court for the past two bills which haven't been passed, right. it shows that their caucus is just not together. And that's the thing that's really interesting, right, is that the Republican Party conservatives have control of all three, you know, real branches of, of government right now in terms mm-hmm. of having been able to select another Supreme Court justice to mm-hmm. tip the favor in form of the realm of conservatives again, for the Supreme Court. Exactly. The Congress have House and Senate with majority Republican politicians. And mm-hmm. then also the executive is run by the Republican Party through Donald mm-hmm. Trump. So the idea is really tricky that you have control of all of these different branches of government, and yet you still aren't able to pass this legislation that you've been working on, right? Exactly. I mean, they've been working on it. I feel like they're just trying to expedite something through legislation as opposed right. to spending the time. Obama spent over a year coming together with this ACA. Now, the Republican 
Republicans have tried to repeal and replace the ACA dozens of times, and it's just unsuccessful. It failed both in the House and in the Senate, and it's showing that the Trump administration is just not on the same page right now. I mean, they're mandated right now to do what they can to decrease the deficit, and it's currently at $19.9 trillion, and they're not doing what they have to do in order to make sure that people are not being harmed, particularly the elderly, the disabled, and the poor. Absolutely. And I, I usually think when we talk about these issues, it's important to recognize the fact that you trying to change healthcare right now is necessarily mm-hmm. going to take people off of healthcare, right? Of coverage right now. Exactly. And that's the thing that people are really concerned about because well, none of the options being provided are dealing with that. So what I'm most concerned about is how they're planning to make the transition from ACA to the Graham-Cassidy bill. I don't think that they've come up with an acronym for that even yet, mm-hmm. but we can call it GC. So my issue is that what they plan to do is to kind of remove federal funding and give each state a block grant, give the states their discretion on how to implement health care into the system. Ooh, what's a block and, grant? Yeah, oh, God, you tell me. <laughs> a block grant is a state program where basically you get an allowance as a state to do a program such as Medicare or Medicaid. And when you run out of that money that's been given to you for the year, you're done. There's exactly. no flexibility. You can't get more money. And, yeah, exactly. People and so their argument, they're saying, and this is specifically what was said by the senator, well, wouldn't you rather the states who know the economic conditions and the political climates of those specific states, you know, the working conditions and stuff, wouldn't you rather those states be able to have the discretion to implement health care in a positive manner for their constituents as opposed right. to having it done in Washington, D.C.? So they're trying to decentralize health care. And in decentralization, they're giving states the autonomy to be create the privatization of health care, to privatize the market. But our issue with that is privatization of the health care market inherently leaves out people. It's an exclusionary method that disables access to health care by poor and elderly and persons with pre-existing conditions. Right. So that's severely problematic. And so what they're saying is that the states are given the autonomy to develop diverse approaches to policy reform, and this is able to be responsive to current political climates. But again, inherently, it just it's exclusionary. And if we look comparatively to what how this worked with welfare, because they did the same thing, they decentralized. Mm-hmm. They gave states these block grants and said, right. okay, now you have the discretion to disseminate welfare. What happened? The state, it was a basically a race to the bottom. States right. were hyper-criminal the poor. There, there was punitive efforts against those who were on welfare. There were strict time limits. There were strict working requirements, and it caused havoc in poor communities. And so, right. it it was literally a mechanism to target the disenfranchised. And that is a lot of what's happening with this bill as well. You know, pre-existing conditions have been a primary sticking point throughout mm-hmm. the summer, right? Because mm-hmm. let's be clear, this is the third attempt at trying to repeal Obamacare this summer third, alone, right? Exactly. We had the Affordable Health. Care Act that was passed from the House earlier this summer. Then there was the Better Health Care Reconciliation Act, which exactly. was an attempt from Senate to try to fix that and make it better to actually be mm-hmm. able to pass, and right? It and it, it never... It still didn't pass, still right? still didn't pass. So it's, and it's that just issue... Lack, and, it's, and, mm-hmm. and even so, the way that it's, they're trying to pass it just shows that they have a lack of transparency. Right. They're, why isn't the bill available to the public? It's the same criticism they had towards Obama, and they're saying, oh, you know, they're passing the ACA, 
that. And it's basically them able to bypass and construct a secret Senate. And now Republicans are doing the same thing. It's hypocrisy. They're trying to pass this bill. They're trying to rush it through. They're not exposing it to the public. We don't know what is inside. What is inside this bill? We don't know what is inside this legislation. Well, we're hearing promises from, you know, conservatives I mean, that are talking we about. We can, hear, we can hear promises and we can hear efforts and we can hear projections. But mm-hmm. we want to know what's inside this bill. Right. Is it going to take 30 million people off of health care as projected? 19 million people by next year. What is this bill going to do? Is it going to remove accessibility? I feel like it's a political move. So you saying that these certain people have don't have access to health care. It's taking away money from the states, impacting Medicaid, and it's making health care inaccessible. So it's not saying, OK, you can choose your own health care. It's saying that you can choose, but we're going to make it hard for you to choose. Right. And I think one of the things that we're hearing, at least from the Graham-Cassidy bill, is that this bill is different because it actually leaves coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. So they're trying to slowly add in pieces of what is already being provided through the yeah, Affordable Care Act. Which is why some Republicans are even arguing that it doesn't drift away enough from Obamacare. Right. But then also you have folks, the three senators who were, you know, diehards that decided to vote no mm-hmm. against the Better Health Care Reconciliation Act in the Senate, mm-hmm. including one, John McCain, who got a lot of publicity for doing this, right? All of them found something that was wrong in the bill and therefore were comfortable saying no even to their own party. So now what's happening is that senators and House members are looking to those specific senators to figure out what can we offer you, maybe not even in the healthcare realm, that'll make you comfortable with saying yes to this new bill. And so we're already hearing that deals are being made under the table. States are getting more funding for other programs that they're working on. Certain states are getting more funding. Certain states like California are tremendous getting less funding right. because California is a democratic state. It's it's severely problematic and it's honestly troubling to see that we can't come together and make bipartisan efforts to include all communities in this health care issue because everyone needs access to health care. You know, it's just egalitarian goals. How do you feel about this new bill that is being promoted by uh, Bernie Sanders and his crew, the single payer I've bill? I've heard, you know, I've heard about it, the Bernie bill. <laughs> right. However, I haven't researched it enough to have, I feel, as though an objective enough opinion, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think we talk about it next time. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, like the single payer idea is really interesting. It's something that has been kind of pushed around for multiple years. It's something that a lot of other governments and other countries have tried to create and have been pretty kind successful of like, in doing. Isn't it like healthcare? for all kind of thing? Like it, yeah, the all. idea that everyone has yeah. access to health care, right? And you are able to contract basically to make sure that you have access to whatever you need based on your specific condition. So we're not looking at, you uh. know, comparing one person who's sick to another person that has a different illness, right? We're yeah. looking at each person's individual health and their needs, which mm-hmm. is a lot more tailored. Um, but for sure, we can definitely do another segment where we talk a little bit more in detail about I think, some I of those things. I think most well. problematically is that this is just really all politics and I don't think that we're allowing people to even participate in the American democratic process at this time. Because, again, when we remove money from the states, we're essentially pricing people out of health care. And we're doing it under a guise of autonomy. And I think that's when we can get into arguments of neoliberalism and capitalism. Mm. And I think that that's where we're most divided right now in the government. And 
again, I'm trying to emphasize that healthcare is in a bipartisan effort. However, it's not being taken as such. And I think the Republican Party itself is divided. We're obviously operating right now off of the polarization of politics between Republican and Democratic and within. It, exactly. And exactly. And within. If not even all Democrats are on board with what Bernie Sanders is proposing exactly. as well. I mean, I, mean so. I don't know if I'm on board. Like people know. just don't. Like, I just don't know. Right. You know? And, and it gets into this argument about the right, like the far right. What do they call the alt right? And then the leftists. And, and it's just troubling. It's honestly saddening. So we're going to switch gears really quick. We're going to talk about DACA. One thing that we're really interested in trying to figure out more about is why Donald Trump and the Republican Party are so in favor of removing millions of undocumented immigrants who contribute to our country and to various other sectors of our country economy. So right now we're dealing with the potential removal of DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood um, Arrivals. Mm -hmm. That program was created under the Obama administration as kind of like a solution in the short term for people who are undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children. So it allows certain individuals who are here without lawful status in the United States to request and receive a renewable two-year presumptive reprieve from removal. And so within this, they're giving a permit that says you can work here, you're authorized to study here and such, and you don't have to wake up tomorrow wondering whether or not you're going to be deported. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, it's a temporary assuage, but it's working because it's enhancing the productivity of our immigrant community. And it's also, I think it's it's working for us. Absolutely. It's contributing to our market forces, to our intellectual spaces, and it's creating a very meaningful dialogue about what it means to be an immigrant and be in America. Absolutely. And I mean, the removal or the call for the removal of DACA has been something that has led it's, to it's a lot been, of political organizing. I mean, Even here at Harvard, exactly. we had a rally. I know there have been rallies across the country. Mm-hmm. And personally, knowing people who are undocumented immigrants makes it really a big deal for me because I realize how much they struggle on a daily basis, how much uncertainty they live with, because they do not know if the life they're trying to create for themselves and their families is going to be sustained, right? Right? Mm-hmm. At any moment, someone could be removed from their life, deported to another country where they may not have ever lived in the past and have to restart their entire life. Exactly, because mind you, these are children. And I think that a lot of the Republican arguments for this or the conservative arguments at this point are that these people are coming here and they're becoming criminals and they're putting the American people at jeopardy and such, which is untrue. Come on, guys. In order to get granted this reprieve, you're not allowed to have a criminal record. And you Correct. also must be under a certain age. And you also must show that you're set or doing something productively adding to the American society. And so I think that this rhetoric that surrounds the victimization of Americans and shows that, oh, there's an unfair system and Americans are being denied jobs, you know, by the hundreds of thousands to these alleged illegal aliens. I think that that is just problematic rhetoric and it's creating a divisive community once again. We are getting divisiveness. We're getting emboldened to be divisive. And I think that that's just problem. You know, everything is problematic. And I think the question is usually usually one that is very, you know, it it seems like it's a dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. Humanity versus amnesty, right? As as people like to think of it. Amnesty being that you're allowing people to come into this country through a means that you did not prescribe and therefore they have, quote unquote, broken the law and have to go back in line and let people who have done so, quote unquote, legally, you know, get their ability to do so. Mind you, the C in DACA stands for children. 
they have not done anything wrong. They came here with their parents, and if you want to address the parental issue, then you can look at the legislation passed on DAPA. But that's which even is the issue, right? Exactly. And that's the issue that so DAPA wasn't even allowed to really get any traction because people have always felt like the blame should be on parents, and that's even mm-hmm. a conservative talking point now, which is that you know you should blame not the children but the parents and force the children to be complicit in that. So people are mm-hmm. saying that there might be some type of program in which children are allowed to stay under DACA, but they must report their parents so that their parents can be properly adjudicated and potentially removed from the country. Mm-hmm. And so it's putting DACA recipients in a really terrible position, mm-hmm. dreamers especially, I mean, everyone, because they feel like they I, have to risk that. And I think that everyone across the board is realizing that. I think that even Trump is realizing that because we've seen him flip-flop on this right. several times. Right. At one point he's saying, oh, they need to go. Law and order, you know, insert remark here about how they're here illegally. And then in the other point, he's saying they're very amazing children. They're great kids, you know. Because there's no side that works for the conservative party here, right? Exactly. But you know what I think? I think that it's another political move, just like healthcare. I think that the Republicans is pressuring him to make good on his promise to allegedly, quote unquote, fix the immigration policy and to remove illegal immigrants. And I think that, I mean, he was incentivized to do this by the members of the um, Senate, the representatives who were saying that, okay, we're going to come sue you. If you don't pass some type of immigration legislation, our states are going to sue you for the removal of DACA. And so, you know, we have Trump with his advancement of quote unquote law and order, which says, okay, we need to go hard on these immigrants. We need to remove them and such. But remember what law and order is, guys. Remember what happened when Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, you know, and Goldwater and Gerald Ford, when they were demanding law and order, what happens and which communities are targeted at that right. point. And I mean, let's not forget that Donald Trump ran on a platform of building a border wall, which still have not exactly, been which still financed. Have not, and, I think, exactly, and I think that at this point, he's just levying his ability to get that done. I think that at this point, he's saying, okay, well, maybe he lets DACA stay, and then maybe we can get funding from Congress for this wall that he's been right. trying to build, which is another thing. I heard a lot of his proponents of this, of this removal of DACA. I heard that, you know, they're saying, you know, all he's trying to do is to get Congress to implement legislation that could be permanent on behalf of the children. And so what do you think about that? I mean, all of the things that I've heard from politicians have always gone again again around this line of amnesty, right? That we want people to go by the rules, right? As if these rules are meaningful and legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, And that they are only being violated by certain people that just happen to have brown skin, just happen to come from Latin America or South America, right? Which isn't true and oftentimes plays into a very racist and xenophobic Mm -hmm. project because a lot of data will show you that only around half of the undocumented immigrants in the country come from parts of Latin America and South America. A lot of people actually come to this country and are undocumented, but are from other continents entirely. Mm -hmm. Parts of West Africa, parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia, parts of Mm -hmm. Europe, right? We don't think about those people as much when we are talking about undocumented immigration Mm -hmm. or about the quote-unquote criminals that are coming into our country through these means for a specific reason. And the fact that we don't talk about that and we don't think about how to actually uniformly create a legitimate immigration system show that this is really just targeting certain people that the Republican Party, that Donald Trump, do not like. Let's always remember... <laughs> they don't like. They just don't like. <laughs> let's remember the first illegal immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Which were people that came to this continent, thought it was their own, and 
began a systemic project of pillaging and colonialism I was and murder say colonialism, exactly. in order to make this country, quote unquote, their own. So it's still a, a, a really weird and kind of paradoxical idea for people to run the government now and say, you are in our country illegally and therefore yeah, you when, should be removed. when our entire country is built upon the subjugation of your people. Right. When folks that come from Latin America have ancestors who have had claims to this land for centuries before you got here. I think that's, that's a long and deep conversation. We might even have to turn into a new segment. <laughs> Everything's like, dang, it's on segment. It's on for segment. For sure. <laughs> I mean, but we already know DACA is going to continue to be in headlines, so I'm sure we'll talk about it in the future. We hear that there is a deadline being set up by Trump for Congress to develop a more long-term option. And if not, he's going to implement that executive order that's already written, the one that he criticized Obama for implementing, because, you know, DACA was allegedly an executive order. Right. You know, So we're again, already worried about that. And right. the Republican Party go hand in hand. So next, you know, we're waiting for whatever <laughs> solution people are going to be able to, huh? <laughs> Should we be more bipartisan? <laughs> I mean, the whole idea of we're this telling is it talking like about it is. the we're being objective. Yeah, so. we're being ob- objective. I don't know if we say objective. I'm being I objective. I don't believe in it, but <laughs> cool. So we're going to talk about something that made a ton of headlines this week, which was the fact that our government is once again wiretapping folks in our country in relation to the Russia investigation. So over the entire you know, beginning part of 2017, the Trump administration has been under investigation, under the direction of Bob Mueller, running an investigation to try to figure out whether or not Russia has worked to affect the U.S. 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And if there was any influence by the Trump administration in colluding with them or in trying to prevent an investigation of Russia in the first place. Our friend, our good friend, Paul Manafort, He is a key figure in this investigation. Former Uh, campaign director for Trump Mm -hmm. during the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. So he's a key figure in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's involvement in the election. Apparently, he's been under surveillance. Wiretapped. Right. Multiple times, (laughs) in fact. Multiple times. Multiple times. And it's been dropped and it's been picked up. And what do we have today? Really a great question. Because we still don't know what they've (laughs) picked up, right? All we know is the fact that he was wiretapped. We know that the FBI raided his home. They did. And picked up documents from there. And this whole thing should freak people out, I think, right? Even as a... you know, the raid was followed up with a warning to Manafort from Miller's prosecutors that they planned to indict him. Right. Whatever they found on that raid, it might have been interesting. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And and I think it's freaky in general that people in our country are being surveilled by our U.S. government. Right. I don't even think of this in terms of partisan lens. Like, I feel like it's very problematic that our government has the ability to do this in the first place. When Edward Snowden. Right. When when Edward Snowden um, released documents that he got in trouble for and had to flee the country for, those documents were actually about the process by which the U.S. government is able to spy on U.S. citizens and on foreign citizens that are in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that is actually the process by which, you know, this is actually happening right now. So we have this very... but first, uh two ginormous misconceptions. Everyone is saying that Trump has been vindicated for tweeting that Obama was wiretapping him. Trump has not been vindicated. It's not been proven. It's very unclear right now whether or not Obama administration had anything to do with this FISA court issuing of the surveillance of Manafort. So we don't know that. Firstly, and secondly, Trump has been saying, or he did say on Twitter, his, you know, popular platform, that Obama was wiretapping his phone. Again, super unclear. We don't know what was wiretapped. We don't know who was wiretapped. For all we know right now, it was only Manafort, and it was only in his places of work. We don't know. 
Right. And, and I mean, not been vindicated, guys. This we is the know. whole kind of conservative talking point right Still now because Trump had made that statement pretty early on in his administration that the Obama administration had wires in the White House. Mm-hmm. And so He's people are like thinking. Right, right. And so people are thinking now that this is some type of kind of smoking gun. We're not really sure yet, right? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. No, but maybe so, because, again, it's unclear whether or not the Obama administration had anything to do with this. And it's also unclear. I mean, you know, Obama administration happened under his administration, but we don't know why the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was implemented against Manafort. We don't know what they were looking for other than the collusion with Russia. And it could be something else, you know. We just don't know. And and that's why I think it's really important for us to kind of break down what the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act actually does, right? So we already know that we have a bunch of different courts, right? Usually we think of the Supreme Court as the primary court that, you know, pushes out all of these really important laws and jurisprudence, right? We have also our federal government courts and also our state government courts. There's also courts that are outside of that jurisdiction in terms of that general structure. And the FISA court is one of those courts. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act actually created a separate court with its own procedure. We don't know where the court is physically. All we know is that this court has judges appointed to it by the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, who are able to make the determination of whether or not people should be surveilled using government resources. The Justice Department is an only agency of the government that can speak before the FISA court. Mm -hmm. So all they really have to do is develop a strong case for why they think someone is a spy or is working with a foreign government that is malevolent to the United States. And then if the FISA court feels like there's enough information, they will give a permit for wiretapping, for collection of data from phones and emails, all this type of data about this person to be used in developing a criminal investigation. Now, there's a time limit for sure, right? I think it's about 90 days is the duration in which they can do the surveillance, and then they have to come back to the FISA court and basically show that they have found something worthwhile. But it's still kind of, it irks me that we had to create a process like this in the first place to allow people to be surveilled, right? And, and, And a lot of this was created after 9-11, terrorism was a buzzword. It was a fear around the country. And because of that, the United States felt prepared, especially through the Patriot Act, to create new structures for people to be surveilled for the security of the government, quote unquote, or security of our nation. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's weird that we're using this now against U.S. citizens, as we already have, right? But to also know against executive branch. Exactly. People that have been working with our president. Exactly. So at this point, we're still waiting to find out what exactly was in the FISA court order, right? Because they had to prove pretty substantial evidence to even get this permit to do the wiretapping. So I mean, it just shows like the hysteria of international terrorism and how it actually kind of excludes domestic terrorism and collusion with other governments. Right. I think that that's a really interesting dynamic right there. Right, right. And let's not forget that the U.S. government has spied on organizations that have done, you know, anti-oppression, anti-racism work in the past here as well, oh, yes. right? The Black oh, Panthers yes. were spied on, Black, right? I was just a lot of Panthers. organizations that have been trying to build power have been spied on by the government. And that is actually, again, why Edward Snowden was kind of in trouble for doing this, is because we all started to realize how much information the government has been collecting on average citizens, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a fear that people now have to live with. 
every day. You know, we have new phones coming out now that are going to be able to look at our faith and use information on our faith. Hint, hint, iPhone. Location services on our location services. (laughs) But all of that is kind of weird, right? It is. I don't want. I don't know what's. I don't know what the U.S. government has going on. Right. Right. And we don't know what information we have on our phones that is made easily accessible to government actors if they feel the need to do so. Exactly. For their discretionary purposes. We don't know. All right, y'all. We're going to get into the... The petty, my the favorite. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> like the petty, my it's favorite. favorite. It's your favorite. Let's tea. lie. No, it's not. Let's, Let's not, not lie. lie. I like the politics. So, today we're going to be discussing the ethics of Nazi punching. Nazi punching. Can you go out on the street and knock out a Nazi? I can. Can I? I, I feel, you know, I feel comfortable with it. I Let's feel give very some preface. Let's it. give some context, com- right? Okay, no, I'm just joking. So, over the summer, a lot of really wild things have happened, right? One of those okay. things was Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Charlottesville, Charlottesville. Let's just give a little tiny bit of background. What happened? What was Charlottesville? So, there was a call for the removal of a Confederate statue, mm-hmm. one of many statues that have been slowly tumbling over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And folks in Charlottesville, on the far right, also people that are white supremacists openly, also people that are openly Nazis, were very pissed about this. Exactly. And so they decided to do a torchlight rally to protest the removal of this Confederate statue. Well, I think that they went under the guise of freedom of speech. I think it was a free speech rally that they were saying. It was that, but it also had flaming tiki torches purchased from probably Indonesia, at... Right? Are, are they from... Where are they from? They aren't American. They're not American. For sure. They probably <laughs> got them from a Home Depot yeah, or somewhere. Exactly. I mean, but the, I know that the origins of tiki lights Oh, you mean not, culturally? Yeah, yes. Culturally, absolutely, they're, they're not... It was like funny appropriation right there when we're kind of protesting. Oh, absolutely. Against. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. They didn't so, realize that. I mean, and I think that Charlottesville was the culmination of a troubled col- political climate of pressure from both sides. I mean, we had the trans military ban. We had, you know, uh, what else? We had so many, so many things happen. Oh, right, right. Uh, yeah, so I feel like it all culminated in Charlottesville, whereas Nazis and supremacists and nationalists came together and allegedly advocated freedom of speech when really it, it seemed as though it was a hate rally. And so as a result, there was a counter protest led by people on the left there were rallies, marches in the streets. Mm-hmm. There was chanting, Black Lives Matter, absolutely. Antifa, uh, just yeah, Anti- Antifa being an- the anti-fascist kind of amorphous mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. Um, no one really exactly, exactly knows the origins, but Antifa folks have been around in other countries and yeah. other governments. And, yeah, doing exactly. This work other, for a while. Exactly. And so, what Charlottesville, what the alleged free speech rally is saying was that they were peacefully protesting when attacked by these counter protesters which i am not buying despite I mean, the I fact mean, that one person can, died I mean, can we, on the exactly, left on the rest left. in peace heather but can we really even at, can we really even propone a peaceful protest when the things that you are protesting are just not peaceful in itself you know if you you can peacefully hold up a Nazi sign, but if a Nazi sign is a symbol of hate and anti-Semitism and an emboldening act for xenophobia and, you know, a lot of the, you know, issues that we've been having in today's political climate, if we're, if we're actually saying, I mean, going under the guise of freedom of speech and saying, okay, well, freedom of speech also includes hate speech. I mean, it 
does, but I mean, really, at what cost? It, the cost of who? The cost of life at this point, because absolutely, I mean, this a young lady died in Charlottesville. Absolutely, and I think it's a question of what do we mean when we talk about violence, right? A lot of times, people think of violence solely as someone is being hit in the face or someone is being attacked physically. We don't think of the fact that violence actually comes in multiple different forms, including verbal forms of of abuse, right, and violence. So having a Nazi flag to someone that is Jewish, to someone who has, you know, family members that were survivors of the Holocaust or potentially even perished during the Holocaust, these are things that still evoke violence, right? When we see white supremacists wearing KKK outfits, calling people the N-word, shooting at them, as I saw in one video from the Charlottesville rally, it's very clear that there is a hatred that is costing actual lives at this point, costing livelihoods, and it's forcing people out into the streets because they feel that they are more safe by speaking out than by being silent. So, I mean, to me, your alleged support of freedom of speech is a support of hating these groups, hating these marginalized persons, and it's unacceptable, and I think that it's undemocratic. And I don't think that that's what the Constitutional meant when we did say that freedom of speech you know, we did grant the citizens the power of freedom of speech. I think that it did not mean to advocate a hate toward, or maybe actually that's when it did, you know? Right. Maybe that was a constitution. And that's why the rhetoric about violence can be kind of tricky, right? Because a lot of people on the left have advocated for the use of violence in response to violence, right? When it exactly. is, you know, used physically or verbally or emotionally. Exactly. And so that's why the issue of Nazi punching has actually been exactly. kind of an interesting pop culture debate for some folks. You have folks yeah. on the right and on the left, progressive liberals, saying we shouldn't be using violence to solve violence because... And what did the ACLU say? Wasn't the ACLU in defense of freedom of speech now? They were defending folks that were trying to have a far-right rally. Exactly. And later on sent an apology recognizing that some of the stuff they had done... Mind you guys, the ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union. Usually they're pretty progressive. But have historically have supported people on all sides of the political mm-hmm. spectrum because they believe in freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. But that is a pretty myopic viewpoint of what freedom of speech it is, means. It's very right? myopic. It's, it's very okay myopic. for you to say people it's have the right to say exactly. whatever they want, but it's also a problem when that speech is violence. It manifests into violence. And it it's expected, manifests into hate. And it, it manifests into the alleged democratic issues that you're against. So. And and it's expected that people will meet this form of violence with peace. Mm-hmm. And and that's always something that I find really frustrating is that Turn every time <laughs> we hear Can MLK we? being referenced, every time we talk about something like this, what would Martin Luther King have exactly. said if we, you know, if he saw that we were out I mean, here let's look at the fighting back? For that. What would Malcolm X and the Black Panthers do? Well, we can, we can actually <laughs> answer that question, yeah. right? Martin Luther King has written extensively about the risk that is caused by people that are well-meaning and want to use peace as a solution to a fault, right? Where someone is so middle ground and is so in favor of a, what, you know, Martin Luther King called a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, as opposed to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, right? I mean, but then you have progressives that tell you the positivity is not working. You need some type of revolutionary act. And if this type of action, I won't, I'm not justifying 
or even championing them. But, I, I mean, if they feel that these types of acts are revolutionary, whereas they have to go out and physically make a difference as opposed to peacefully holding up a sign when you're telling, when people are telling you you're being hated and you need to leave their country, I mean, what gives? I, I just always think about the fact that we actually went to war over these values in the past. Yeah, we, we have. Did it. There, there we are did still it. pamphlets We've being put movements. out. We've there, had entire movements dedicated right. to the revolutionizing of these types of movements. Right. There, there, there are still war pamphlets out there showing Uncle Sam attacking Nazis, like fighting Nazis, because that was a thing that the country did. Right. Uh, Inglorious Bastards was a movie that was not historical necessarily, but still showed some of the frames in which Americans saw Nazis in the past. Exactly. And so it's kind of weird now for us to see people actually defending Nazis, which is exactly. what Donald Trump did when exactly. he described both sides having the bad actors or speech. good so actors. So exactly, when he tried to act as though the blame was equitable between both sides, that was clearly... Uh, problematic because, I mean, you're talking about one group that's advancing hate and then you're talking about a, a counter group that's upset because one group is advancing hate. And then to equitably distribute blame at that point, and again, under the guise of free speech, I think that that is what is wrong with America. And I think that that rhetoric and that inability to address these issues, to create these spaces for dialogue, is why they continue to happen. So Donald Trump, I feel like he's perpetuating this type of and he's endorsing this type of behavior because then two weeks after the riot, what happened? He pardoned Joe Arpaio, who was a symbol for critical treatment of immigration. And what he was doing was actually looked at by the Justice Department at this point, like, okay, you know, you're clearly discriminating and it's naked discrimination. Yet Donald Trump goes and pardons him. And I think that, again, these types of actions, this type of rhetoric is endorsing this type of behavior. And it's why these, these why these systemic issues are perpetuated. I think a lot of times when we think about the free speech issue, too, we always think of providing protections to the people that are offering that free speech, but not protections to the people who are offering another form of free speech in counter protest. So one thing that's actually about to happen is a number of different free speech events at the University of California, Berkeley. I actually have a friend that goes there mm -hmm. and has been sending me information, articles, and emails from their administration at the university and at the law school there talking about the fact that they apologize for what is about to happen because they know that there is going to be so much turmoil as a result of these free speech rallies. They have, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos going and Coulter is going. Oh, All God, of these really oh, polarizing figures who use their exactly. platforms to spew hate but God. are using free speech as a shield exactly. to protect themselves from the response to that. Exactly. And so you're going to have folks like in, this. In some, free speech cannot be a shield for your hate speech, for your anti-Semitism, for your xenophobia, for your homophobia, for your inability to cope with the fact that America is an integrated society built upon the subjugation of races, and your race is no longer dominant. Free speech is not a shield for your white supremacy, for your nationalism, for your hate of other people. It's not. And so can we punch Nazis? Nazis? Probably not. Should we? Probably so. What do you think? I mean, can we? You, you think no? I mean, no, we can't. You can't. No, Cam. Oh I, I, don't, I don't think we I don't think we can punch Nazis without consequence, probably. But I okay, don't there think... you go. So you don't you guys don't want consequences. No, you can't punch Nazis. What you can do is you can create 
and open dialogues for spaces to discuss the ethics of these Nazi actions to produce intellectual material that stimulates your communities. You can encourage and do I sound like Martin Luther King? <laughs> you can peacefully. Uh, not to me. You can. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> not to me. <laughs> you can peacefully uh, figure out ways to uh, effectuate change. All I'll say is that we've done worse to Nazis in the past, and Americans have lauded and applauded and been honored and received medals. What should we for do, it. Pam? What should we do? And this is going to close up the petty. Pam, Pam telling us what we should do to Nazis. Please. <laughs> I mean, all I'm saying is that. We have a toolbox of different tactics that should be used in achieving these forms of justice. And mm -hmm. violence, which is used against us, cannot be seen as an ineffective means of retaliation or of defense for ourselves, right? There are different mm -hmm. ways for us to use violence, and violence isn't always going to be a way. What are you going to do? Well, let me finish up. <laughs> violence is not always going to be an affirmative action. In the law, we already know that there are multiple forms of violence that are sanctioned by the government. Self-defense has always been a defense to a charge of criminal law for assaulting somebody, right? Exactly. And so we have to think about the use of violence in a different way as opposed to it being something that is always going to harm free speech proponents, despite the fact that free speech can also be a form of violence against people, too. Exactly. So I think we just have to and really broaden our understanding. So a more oppressive form of violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we just have to think of violence in a different way. We can't think of it as, oh, you're attacking me and that is mm -hmm. violence. We have to think about all of the forms of violence that are more systemic, that are quieter, that are unseen, exactly. and that have significant consequences to people exactly. that are marginalized and come from oppressed communities. Hello. Thanks so much for listening to the first Hello. episode of Petty hey. Politics. It's really Hi. fun for me. I'm sure it was fun for you too, Brie. We always do this off of the radio and also uh, on the radio. Exactly. I mean, half of Petty Politics happens in my living room, guys. Right. I haven't seen a game for <laughs> <laughs> So thanks so much. Like we said, this is a program being brought to you by the Harvard Black Law Students Association. We thank you so much for giving us the resources and the space to be able to publicize this. Also, thank you to the Harvard Public Affairs and Communications Office, which houses us and allows us to have a podcast with such crystal clear quality. So, yeah, Josh and Katie will do this interview. Then we'll put that at the end of the show. So... Take a look at our social media. What? Uh, yeah, <laughs> Brie, what can, are those? You can find us at Harvard Bolsa. That's at Harvard Bolsa. B -L -S -A. That's on both Instagram and Twitter. I know there's no O in Bolsa. Someone asked me this week, is there an O in Bolsa? I was like, I don't know how you pronounce it that way, but every yeah, other law student I, I, association yeah. does that. Did you see, you know, yeah. Harvard, spelled as Harvard, H-A-R-V-A-R-D-B-L-S-A. Awesome. So and please send us your suggestions. We want to hear from you guys. Maybe eventually have you guys call in. We're going to have a lot of interesting guests come on. We're going to be talking about a lot of controversial topics, and we even want adverse opinions. And so I think that your input would be very, very helpful and appreciated. Awesome. So tweet at us, send us a DM on the gram or on Twitter, and let us know what kind of the topics you want us to talk about. Are there any questions you have about law or policy that you'd like us to answer? Is there the take you want us to give on some random pop hey, culture issue? You as well, let us know. We might be able to bring that up on the next show. Uh, do we awesome. Awesome, y'all. Take care. Be Take easy. Take care. Be easy.